Welcome to the Deep Dives Podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson, and I am very happy to have back in the building, once again, former co-host of this podcast, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Uh, basketball and all, all various levels is re- is really heating, heating up. It, it, it's been a lot of fun this this last month or so. Yeah, I mean, reaching the midpoint in the NBA season and the college season, you know, we're, we're starting to get to the point where things are getting serious and it's very rare that we could be on this podcast and both of our NBA teams are not in the absolute doghouse. <laughs> it's, uh, it's nicer this time of year than it usually is. It's a m- much welcome change of pace. So let's talk about the most recent article that you wrote over for No Ceilings. Uh, check us out, noceilingsnba.com, totally free. That was you style plug. I tried to rush through it. Anyway, um, so you talked about AJ Johnson for this article. And let's just sort of start with the broad sort of general idea what was it that made you decide to write about AJ for this article? The flashes, the potential. Um, when you asked me to come on, I, I thought it was kind of a, a funny juxtaposition uh, given our last conversation where we talked almost purely about production and re- kind of guys, older guys who are a little more ready to play right now, a little more plug and play. And uh, AJ Johnson is the exact opposite of that where he is going to be a long-term project um you just kind of have to ignore the numbers and the production or lack thereof with him right now um and kind of just buy in on the idea and the flashes and just the little things that he does throughout the game um and every time i watch him i come away just really impressed with the the little stuff that he does the the incremental progression he's made throughout the season the athletic tools his commitment to doing the little things that don't really show up in the box score that don't really get heralded, but they lead to winning basketball. They're, they're just little things that you have to do as a NBA player. And just as a basketball player to affect winning, to get minutes, to earn more of that opportunity that we expect from top tier guys. So if you just look at the numbers, which I know a lot of people have, and you know, I, I do too, especially with overseas guys, um, they're bad. They're they're flat out awful. I get it. I don't really care with him, though. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I'm glad that you brought up sort of what we talked about last time. I mean, the title of this piece is literally process over production. <laughs> and I think this is a very you know good time to talk about it in specific on my end, just because a lot of my thinking on this year's draft class over the last few weeks in particular has been more along the lines of, OK, who's who's close to a sure thing, right? Like who can I say, you know, okay, if I take Zach Eady with the 23rd pick, is he going to be one of the 10 best players in the draft? Probably not. But is he going to be one of the 15? Is he going to be someone who's better at 23 than people who go at 22 and 24? Probably odds are good, right? But the flip side of that is that, you know, when you're talking about, okay, with the, you know, I'm I'm just going to say 23rd pick just because it's, you know, late first round ish, like relatively, (laughs) relatively good for the sake of hypothetical arguments of, okay, if you're drafting someone at that spot who, yeah, I guess maybe there'll be an end of the bench guy at some point for us. You know, it's the flip side of the argument that I've been giving myself over the last few weeks of you try and take a sure thing in this class. The flip side of that is, okay, but if you're going to get someone that you can just pick up for a veteran minimum in free agency why don't you take a chance on, you know, someone exactly like AJ Johnson, right? Who, as you say, you know, some of the stuff that he's doing is good. The results might not be there in terms of purely the statistical stuff, but, you know, as you say, the process is very encouraging, even if, you know, just sort of the quick scan of the box score isn't as pleasant. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely with you on that kind of those for sure guys, you know, as for sure as you can kind of, get with right. some of these upperclassmen like a Dalton Connect or Kevin McCuller, those kind of guys. And I, I do have those kind of guys a, a little higher than AJ right now. But once you get into a certain range in this draft and in the first round, I think taking a swing on a guy like AJ with his raw potential, his athletic tools, um, I, I think he has a really high basketball IQ based on the things that he consistently does on both ends of the court. It's like, yeah, there, there, there's quite a bit more variance in what he's could ultimately 
be, but I think the risk reward factor, once you, like you said, like pick 23, I'd be, I'd be jumping at the opportunity to take a risk on him, especially in the first round where you get a guy this raw, you get that extra year on the contract, you get that extra year of control and you can just kind of throw him in the G league for a year, develop physically, uh, let him adjust to the physicality and the speed and the expectations of the organization. And, you know, I, 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 I mentioned connect and McCuller. I think those guys are kind of pretty solid guaranteed, you know, minimum, just solid rotation guys. And I think those guys should be going late lottery, mid first round. But then when you look at some of these upperclassmen where you kind of have a really good sense of who they are, I'm not entirely sure that it's a guarantee that they're getting well past their first contract anyway. So why not just take a swing on a lottery ticket guy like AJ Johnson? And that's, I think, really the big point that you bring up with McCullough and, and Connect is that, yeah, the guys that normally I would be talking about as, okay, this is someone who, you know, I'm going to put on my Jay Crowder list, right, of like really productive college players who maybe I don't think they're going to be a starter, but I think they'll be a productive role player for a long time. Obviously, Jay Crowder turned out to be more than that, but, you know, I think that's the conversation that's interesting with this draft of, those guys are not going to go in the 20s like, you know, they would have, say, last year, right? You know, it's going to be more of the thing where, okay, you know, you get to, I mean, it's different for different people. We internally at No Ceilings have had a lot of conversations around sort of the 25 spot of this draft of, okay, you know, if you have, it, it's very strange in that, you know, I don't have as much comfort at the top as I normally would. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually... <laughs> I don't know. I surprised myself in going through film deep dives the last few weeks in how relatively comfortable I am with, you know, the say five through 25 range, if that makes sense. Like, I think there's, you know, going to be a good crop of low end starters slash valuable role players in that group. But once you get outside of that, you know, it becomes a thing of, again, if you're very sure that someone is going to be an end of the bench rotation player, you know, is that worth it on a first round pick where you're not sure they're going to play much more than 10 minutes a game anyway, versus, you know, let's go for the mystery box. Yeah. And I, the, the, I mentioned it in the piece, but the, the guy in the kind of framework for taking a guy like AJ Johnson in the late first or even mid first, if you're, you know, really feeling bold about it um, was Anthony Simons with Portland mm -hmm. where, did he fill a need for that Portland team when they took him? No. Was he ready made then? No, but his athletic tools popped every time you watched him. Obviously the tape with him was limited since he did that prep year at IMG, but they were patient with him. They put him in the right positions to develop and succeed. They didn't force him into anything too early. He was able to learn about that, you know, the, the organization, the culture of the NBA and, you know, what he needed to do to grow. And obviously learning behind guys like Dame and CJ McCollum is incredible and a, a really rare opportunity for a young guard, but that patience and that willingness and, you know, opportunity to take a big swing on a guy like that late in the first round, they got the extra years of control it's paying dividends. Anthony has turned into a heck of a player. And, you know, if we did a redraft of that, of his draft, he'd be going way, way higher than he went, uh, which was, I think, right around pick 30. Yeah, I believe he was in the 25 to 30 range, something like that. But yeah, that's that's a fascinating one, because, you know, with Simons in specific, you can't, you know, plan for getting drafted by a team that has Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum right. to learn under, right? Like that's, that's the element of this that's always going to be up in the air. But, you know, the flip side of that is that, you know, there are a lot of teams with really great point guards and combo guards right now. And so, you know, there are a lot of teams, and this is something I've talked about more in the last couple of weeks, but, you know, the idea that if you're picking in the late first round, for the most part, you're going to be, a good to great playoff team that needs maybe one or two more guys. Right. And so, you know, on the one hand that doesn't exactly leave immediate opportunity for someone like AJ Johnson. Right. But on the flip side, you know, it's a team that presumably is, you know, going to have the resources at least to let him sit behind guys, let him learn, let him develop, let him figure things out. And it's that classic developmental conundrum, right? Of, you know, sometimes you need the playing time to develop the way that you need to develop. And, 
you know, on the one hand, you might not get that time on a good team, but you there's also a lot less pressure on you to sort of come in and succeed right away and carry the hopes of a more of a franchise. Yeah, just the odds of a rookie coming in day one and really impacting a championship level team, it, the odds are low. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's easy to just kind of put that, oh, he's a ready, ready-made prospect from day one, tag on any upperclassman, but that can be so misleading. So I, I think it it's kind of finding that balance when you look at a guy like AJ Johnson, who's not going to be a year one contributor, probably not even a year two. Um, you know, by the time you get to year three, that's when you're hoping that he's in the rotation in some form or fashion. But with his upside, does that outweigh someone potentially, you know, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus here necessarily yet, at least. Um, but does that outweigh someone just being the 11th man on the bench? just because he's an upperclassman and if someone gets hurt, okay, now he can fill in for eight minutes. Is is that more beneficial than having what could be a freak athlete, six, seven point guard kind of just waiting in the wings a, a year or two from now? I love how you said not throwing anybody under the bus yet. Well, very, very yeah. important point. About this. We got a lot of time left. Who, who knows? Who knows how this will devolve? Well, I'll try and rescue someone from under the bus <laughs> instead then. Um, what you were saying, the first thought that came to mind for me was Jalen Johnson, who, you know, had, let's say, a confusing uh, year at mm-hmm. Duke before, you know, declaring as a one and done. And year one for the Hawks, he played five minutes a game, spent most of his time in College Park for the G League team. And, you know, now by year three, he's established himself as a starter. He's a clear piece of that rotation going forward. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you look at... <laughs> If you just look at year one, which obviously is not the right way to evaluate any sort of prospect, but, you know, bear with me here for a moment. If you look at year one, right, it's like, okay, this is going to take a while. You know, long-term project, got a lot to figure out. And, you know, he figured things out pretty quickly. And some guys take longer, obviously, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, at the time, I remember just thinking with Jalen Johnson of, man, if it doesn't work, it's going to be a disaster. But if it does work, he's going to be a steal. And sure enough, you know, all credit to him, obviously, but, you know, he he made it work very quickly and, you know, maybe a little bit quicker than even some of his more fervent fans might have expected. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, I'm very much willing to bet that Atlanta is glad that they took that chance on him at 20. Yeah, and, and the the pick for them at the time didn't necessarily make sense where they were filling a hole on the roster. It was just kind of, all right, athletic kind of toolsy forward with a bunch of upside. Why not take a swing, especially at 20, when the, the odds of those guys hitting anyways is exceptionally low. And, you know, now you look at this draft class where there are a lot of question marks um, and there isn't, though there there's not that guaranteed guys those guys that everyone wants and it's like okay well if we're gonna take a swing instead of waiting until 2025 our team's taking that swing at 15 now instead so i i just i think there are going to be a lot of names kind of like aj johnson kind of like trenton flowers where they're going to get called in the first round and people are, are going to lose their minds because the production isn't there the numbers aren't there and they've been overseas so there hasn't been a ton of people watching them every single game like they do with most of these college guys. And, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of Jalen Johnson coming out of Duke. I thought, you know, there, there were a lot more question marks there and everything with him was more theoretical, but to his credit, to Atlanta's credit, they kind of just let him develop. They let him work through the warts in his game. And he's just been absolutely incredible for that team this year. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think it's something that, even if we talk about it quite a bit, I think still goes undersold of just how few prospects from any given draft class stick around for, you know, even past past the first contract, much less past the second contract, right? And so again, you know, it's a bit of a calculus thing that, you know, I wanted to talk about this article. I mean, I always love having you on to talk about basketball with you, but, you know, this specifically, as you mentioned, it's a very good contrast to sort of the way I've been thinking about this draft over the past little while of, wow, if you find anything that's close to a sure thing in the 20s, you got to go for it. You know, the flip side of that is, okay, but, you know, and I feel I feel bad saying this because, you know, he's someone who I absolutely loved as a prospect, but ultimately Davion Mitchell is not working out for a ninth overall pick at the moment. And, you know, he was someone who I think we all agreed on at No Ceilings was, you know, someone who we thought of as a very sure thing. And 
his defense has been exactly as advertised. His shot falls into, you know, something that you have heard me say a million times, what I call the Derek Williams principle, right? Of like, uh, you know, was that really just a one season mirage kind of deal? But yeah, I mean, sometimes even the guys that you think are sure things don't work out as, you know, certainly as you want them to. And that's the kind of thing where it hurts a lot more at nine than it does at 29. But, you know, especially in this year's draft where you're not as sure of anything in that, you know, say 25 to 45 range as you might be in a different draft you know again i think the odds change on when you might just sort of try and cash in the lottery ticket rather than just say you know what this guy's gonna be a solid ninth man because a the solid ninth man is not that much more valuable than a guy you can get with a vet minimum and b you know sometimes even the most sure thing of sure thing guys don't work out the way you think they do yeah, and again, in this class, how many sure things are there? Especially when we start talking about the 20s, it's like, you know, it's like, I would like some of these names to be sure things. Yes. But what what's how realistic is that? And when we look back at the decades of the draft, it's it's not that realistic, unfortunately. It's really, really hard to get consistently valuable players in the draft. And you know, the whole point of the draft is to make your team better. And if you're in a spot where you need to get a guy for the next three years, maybe one of these upperclassmen is going to be that option where, all right, kind of a toolsy wing can be our seventh man, give us 15 minutes a night. He's going to be really solid for his rookie contract. Maybe he gets to his second contract and we'll go from there. And maybe there's not much after that. Um, But if you can get three to four years of solid production from a guy, and that's all you need from that spot, one of these upperclassmen is probably going to be the direction that a team should and will go. Kind of like you mentioned with Davion Mitchell, the, the, the downside with taking these upperclassmen is that that, that long-term production, that long-term growth just isn't there because they're so much farther along on their developmental curve. That's no fault of theirs. It's just a symptom of development. Um, And with a guy like AJ Johnson, he's so early in that developmental curve where if you're taking a swing on him and you expect him to be a producing member of the rotation in the first three years, you're doing it wrong. You're 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 just not val you're just not reading who he is as a player right now correctly, but those stable organizations that have more of a long term view, who are looking at the development, they're willing to be patient, that's where a guy like AJ Johnson really, really makes a lot of sense. That's a great point that you make with the developmental trajectory. And I think it's funny because we at No Ceilings and you and I in particular among the people at No Ceilings have railed in the past against the sort of age phenomenon of you don't just take a 19 year old just because he's 19. The flip Mm -hmm. side of that, though, is exactly as you mentioned, right, of like, look, the 19 year old is on a different place in the developmental curve than the 22 year old just because, hey, that's how growth works. That's how human bodies work, right? You know, even beyond sort of the mental aspect of, you know, I wasn't exactly the most twenty mature 22-year-old, but I was a lot more mature of a 22-year-old than I was of a 19-year-old, right? But, you know, again, it's the it's a whole part of the calculus that makes evaluating the draft so fascinating to me mm-hmm. of, you know, yeah, you're playing with so many different variables. And sometimes, as you mentioned, you know, the idea of, all right, who's a long-term bet that makes sense? And, you know, someone like AJ Johnson, you know, might not shine on the surface if you're just looking at the numbers, but when you're looking at, okay, is he making the right steps in terms of his development? Does he look like he's, you know, trying to make the right decisions with the ball in his hands, trying to figure out where he's supposed to be, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do? You know, okay, there are some very specific stuff, and we'll get into the numbers in a moment here, but very specific stuff that you point out in the article that I strongly agree with that, you know, makes me sort of think, okay, there's something here, you know, even if it's not as... Not as surface level obvious as some people, there's something here that's worth continuing to evaluate. Yeah, and just to, you know, kind of reframe that that um that kind of argument I just made. Um and into this year's draft where, you know, we're already seeing redrafts where Jaime Hawkins is going second overall. And Hawkins is a really good player. He's having an incredible season. This isn't to denigrate him. I think he's gonna be a really good player going forward. I was about but, to say you better not be coming no, on the no, no. podcast to slander Jaime Hawkins. No, 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 not not at all. But then <laughs> in those same redrafts, you see Scoot Henderson fall out of the top ten. And it's like, what are we doing here? We're forty games into the season, into their rookie year. Jaime Hawkins is four year, five years older than scoot do we really not think that scoot's gonna get 
better. And it, it's this reactionary, th- this immediacy that everyone has to have in the draft space of, oh, well, you're 30 games into your career and you're not a Hall of Famer yet. You suck. It's like, or you're 19 playing in the NBA against the best athletes in the world. There's kind of a difference there. And, you know, I, I think Hawkes is going to be fantastic. I still think Scoot's going to be the better player down the road. And that's just because there's so much more room for him to grow and get better. And he's in a situation where he can do that. But since we're so short-term looking, everything is just, it it has to be, what have you done for me today? And not what steps are you taking in the right direction? And what is that going to kind of lead to a year from now, two years from now, three years from now? So let's talk about AJ in specific now and start where you start with the piece with his on-ball scoring. And you know, the shot is one thing that certainly we can talk about. I mean, you know, it's something where, again, the numbers don't quite match the eye test there, which, you know, sometimes I think is uh, worth, worth not sometimes, is always worth noting. But I did want to focus in on one thing that I thought was really key to me, which is his shooting at the rim. And that's the kind of thing where, again, like, you know, there are quite a few guards who I've evaluated in this year's class where they shoot badly at the rim. And my thought is, this is going to be a problem. This is going to be, you know, okay, they're just, you know, they don't have the craft. They don't have the burst to, you know, make it to make it close enough to the rim to make the shot, you know, a easy layup rather than a sort of wildly flung floater vaguely in the direction of the basket. Right. And with AJ Johnson, it's the kind of thing where when there's a massive change in any of these sorts of stats, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, you know, where, what's the signal here and what's the noise, right? Like, you know, I recently wrote about Deron Holmes, the shooting, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot of noise in the signal, but what stood out to me was when I looked into the numbers, like, okay, he's doing really, really well at unguarded catch and shoots. And guess what? At the NBA level, that's the shot he's going to be taking. Right. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with this as a development that I'm willing to buy into. The flip side of that with Johnson is when you see that massive of a fall off, like, okay, yes, there's obviously a difference between AAU play and playing in a professional league, right? But it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, the difference is, all right, why are we seeing this difference? And for me, you know, it's very clearly on the tape to me anyway, is he's just not strong enough yet, right? Rather than, you know, okay, he doesn't have the handle to get around guys. He doesn't have a quick enough first step to get past guys. He's, you know, a smaller guard who can't finish over centers, right? All of those things, you know, might give me longer term concerns, but something like this is like, okay, so this kid who just turned 19 is not having the best finishing numbers while playing in a professional league abroad as a 19 year old. I'm not, I'm not as concerned about that as I am about, you know, say I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head here and failing dramatically, but you know, any sort of smaller guard, like if Trey Alexander was shooting 47% at the rim, I'd be a lot more concerned about that than I would AJ Johnson doing it in the NBL. Yeah. And I, I, just disclaimer, I think I, I've mentioned it a couple times, but every number that we mention here, it's going to be awful. It's going to be so bad. And you're going <laughs> to, listeners are going to roll their eyes of like, why are you wasting your time on this dude? Ignore the numbers. But yes, for, 47.4% at the rim this year, awful, really bad. Um, he is getting fouled on 10.5% of those shots. Just for comparison, Isaiah Collier is getting fouled on 12.8% of his shots at the rim. So that physicality is still kind of there. Um, the But you mentioned it. The, the, the key in all of it is he's just not strong enough yet. He entered that season um, at 165 pounds uh, going against grown men. At yeah, six, that's Turquavion Smith status. Exactly. Um, he's now up to 6'7", 175 pounds. So the the growth, the physical development is coming along. But why I'm not really worried about his at-rim scoring is because he's not, you mentioned Turquavion. The big thing with Turquavion in his freshman year was he was actively contorting his body to avoid contact at all costs. He wasn't getting to the line. He wasn't drawing fouls. He was making shots so much more difficult than what they needed to be because he was so skinny. 
AJ hasn't been doing that at all. He's going into contact. He's initiating contact. He's not afraid of getting hit by guys. He's not afraid of missing. So I, I think he has really good touch. I think the athletic tools are really, really impressive um, and allow him to get to the rim pretty much whenever he wants. 44.7% of his shots are coming at the rim. That's an awesome ratio. Um, so he's not afraid of going down there. He's just not strong enough yet to finish consistently through that contact. But I think a year from now, I think he's going to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's, I think it's been a bit since I've talked about it, but sort of the idea of you know, 0.5 basketball, right. Of like, he's someone who he's not going to look at the rim and be, you know, thinking in his head, Oh, should I, should I challenge here? Right. Like he's, he's going for it. And, yeah. you know, that's the kind of thing where, again, I mean, it's the title of the piece, right. But, you know, process over production, right. It's the kind of thing where, okay, this is something that I see very clearly a world in which it works out and that it's not the hardest swing, right? It's not like, hey, Dylan Mitchell, find a jump shot, right? It's like, okay, you know, if he puts on 15 to 20 pounds of muscle, like, you know, I can see this working out. I mean, you know, again, I, I talk about him all the time just because I love talking about him. But with De'Aaron Fox, when he came into the league, he, you know, his ankles were like about as wide around as my fingers and so okay sure you know you're gonna struggle finishing at the rim when you're a skinny teenager playing in a league against grown professionals and it's the kind of thing where you know this is also something i talk about a lot but i think does need to be you know sort of hammered home here right of you know and you i i believe it was actually aj that you said this about specifically before that if he was at texas he'd be a first round pick um, yeah I, I think he would be a top 10 he'd be considered see, a top 10 guy there we go. And I think part of that is, you know, a lot of these specific statistical issues that he's having are things that would be very much mitigated in a college context where he's playing against people his own age rather than, you know, people a decade older than him who've been professionals for, you know, five, six years. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I, I buy all of it. Just the, the, the mindset that he plays with. It's not that scared, timid hesitant mindset that we typically see from guys with his frame because it's really easy to get hurt when you're that skinny um he just doesn't really care he he's he's aggressive and he's decisive which are two really really important traits that we don't often see in guys his age especially when they go directly to a pro league where um we're seeing it with a lot of the ignite guys where they're way more physically developed than aj is and when the ball skips to them it's catch survey pause okay now what am i doing uh we see it with isaiah collier all the time where ball swings to him and he catches and immediately backs it out 10 feet and calls for a screen and just resets the entire offense a lot of what aj's doing sure there's some of that but a lot of it is really decisive it's catch and go it's just catch make the extra pass and when he's going to the rim he's going he's not just doing it for the sake of it he's looking to score or create for someone um and make the best play possible. So it's just that that decisiveness and that aggressiveness at his size with his explosiveness. I think he has a good frame where he's going to put on the weight. I I just I I don't think the at rim stuff is going to be as much of an issue as the current numbers kind of indicate. So one other thing on the on ball scoring before we sort of move to the next section here, and I do think this is worth discussing, which is he doesn't really have a floater, and this is something that you and I talked about at length with Jaden Ivey when we were doing his evaluation, but I'm curious. I mean, the floater is something that is a lot more important if you think he's going to have a decent amount of on-ball equity. So what, what are your thoughts on sort of how important it is that he developed that shot? Because I think it's crucial for him in terms of just having the ball in his hands more often than not. But the flip side is, you know, if he's more of a complimentary player, it's a lot less important than if he's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. So I'm curious, sort of, where do you stand in terms of where the floater sort of falls in in his developmental priority list, as it were? Um, behind strength training and getting that outside shot a little more consistent. Sure. Um, it, the 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 floater is really bad, and I I you know I, I'm not concerned about the at rim stuff, but the floaters it's rough right now, and he just doesn't have that touch. He kind of looks like he hasn't really ever taken them it, it looks like an uncomfortable it looks like a really uncomfortable shot for him where some of the misses are like they'll just hit off the other side of the backboard and not even touch rim um so not great he also doesn't take a ton of them and i think that kind of goes more towards the 
uncomfortability with it. Um, I'm not entirely concerned. I think it would obviously be an incredible tool for him to have as it would with any player, but being six, seven, I think it's a little less necessary than if he was six, three, you know, where we, we look at a guy like Scoot Henderson, um, it's going to be crucial for him to really kind of develop that floater into a real tool. We've seen how important it is with like a guy like Trey young, AJ Johnson's huge. He's, you know, not now that he's up to six, seven, once he gets stronger, I I don't think he's going to typically be looking to settle for floaters. It'll be a great shot for him to have. Hopefully he gets there, but being that size, once he, the, the strength and the muscle catches up to the height, I think he's just going to kind of be looking to punish defenders at the rim pretty consistently. Yeah, I think that's the key there. The floater is just so much more important if you can't shoot over people. And AJ at least has that potential in a way that, yeah, I mean, Trey Young is the obvious go-to example for a floater right now. But yes, but, you know, the flip side of that is that he needs it a lot more because he's not he's not going to have the height advantage ever. Right. Which is something that AJ will have. Let's move on to the off ball shoot uh, off ball scoring stuff. And you know, again, this is bringing back the caveat that you mentioned earlier of none of the numbers are going to look particularly pretty, but, you know, again, sort of similar to the floater in that he's much better shooting off the catch than he is off the dribble, which again, speaks to me as someone who, you know, maybe their self creation is somewhat lacking, but, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where if you're not going to be the primary or the secondary guy for an offense, you know, just like I mentioned with Theron Holmes earlier, right, of like being able to just space the floor and be, you know, someone who defenses have to pay attention to out there is a much more important first step for a player than, hey, I can shoot like, you know, 40 off the dribble jumpers a game and, you know, hit 15 of them. It's like, okay, but there are, you know, other areas that you need to focus on first. The flip side, though, is if you don't have much of a shot off the dribble, it's a lot harder of an uphill climb to be you know not even a primary scorer but you know a secondary scorer type at the nba level yeah and i i think his off ball shot is kind of he has that similar mentality of when he attacks the rim where he's just really decisive with it um if he's left open in the corner and the ball swings to him he's gonna put the shot up and obviously his shots aren't going in as much as we'd like right now but just having that willingness to shoot from out there um, just opens up so much because e- even if the defender doesn't close all the way out, just a slight hesitancy where you know they raise a hand up and come out of their stance just a little bit, it just creates su- such a bigger lane for a guy with AJ's athleticism to attack that closeout. Um, you know, a-, a guy that we've seen in the NBA really kind of thrive with that is Jalen Suggs. Obviously, his outside shot has started to really come around here. Um, recently, but at the beginning of the year, he was shooting in like the 20% or sub 30% from three, but he was still putting up a handful of attempts a game. And that just created closeouts that he could attack, get into the lane, drive and kick, get to the rim, just do other stuff off of because he was decisive. He was confident. And now that shot's really coming around for him. AJ's a very different player than Jalen, just, you know, using that mentality as an example, but I, I think the mechanics are good. I think he gets good lift on the shot. I think the the touch and the arc and all of that are solid from out there. Again, I just once you get stronger, I, I hate to kind of sound like a broken record and keep going back to it, but I, so much of his game is predicated on just being so far physically behind. But once he gets there in a year, the fact that he's already put on 10 pounds of muscle this year is really encouraging. So I I, I just struggle to think that he's never going to at least be an average shooter. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, you know, I've brought up time and time again, just because this is sort of the (laughs) definitive example for me, but the one season where Rajon Rondo shot 37% from three point range on like one and a half, three point attempts per game. It's like, okay, great. So there's no one within 12 feet of you. And two times a game, when that happens, you're shooting and hitting it at a 37% clip. And the other 12 times you're you know trying to make a cross-court pass that you know doesn't even (laughs) doesn't even get half the way there before it gets picked off right and I don't know I mean with Johnson the biggest concern for me in terms of the offensive stuff is just some of the stuff that comes through in the in the floater area of his touch I mean you know again I've talked time and time again so I don't need to 
you know, go into too much depth, but about how I look at free throw shooting as something that I think is a key evaluator of touch, especially when the sample size for a prospect is small. And unfortunately, you know, not to bang the old drum again, but the free throw numbers aren't pretty for, <laughs> for AJ. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where I'm much more concerned about that sort of question of touch than I am about, first of all, his ability to get to the rim and score at the rim. And, you know, Second of all, sort of any of the other secondary stuff, you know, again, a lot of it relies on the shot being there and being a part of the overall game. And look, I mean, you know, I, I call myself a partial free throw truther for a reason, right? I mean, the shot looks good on film and that's a very important part of the process as well. But if there were, I mean, there are plenty of worlds as with pretty much all prospects where it doesn't work out. But if there were a world where it doesn't work out for Johnson, I would assume that it would be the shot not coming around rather than anything to do with the finishing or anything to do with the other side of the ball. Yeah. I, 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 it's going to be the biggest swing with him um, because you just kind of, you have to shoot um, yeah. just not non shooters, especially with athletic guards. They so rarely make it. You have to be absolutely elite at something else. And it's really difficult to do. Not saying AJ can't do it. Just, the track record of guys like that who never shoot, it's not great. Um, but there are a lot more Gary Payton there. Sorry. There are a lot more Hamadou Diallo's than there are Gary Payton the seconds. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to I mean, what, what continues to make me really optimistic with it and just continue to ignore the numbers right now, the free throw percentage is 58.5%. Really bad. He's taken 12 of them. So, yeah. You know, w one extra make, and that's an entirely different percentage. Um, and that is how his, percentages work. His role has, he's such an ass. <laughs> his role has been so inconsistent this year, where it's like, I, in the beginning of the seat for the first half of the season, he, there would be games where, you know, you see three minutes on the, bo the box score, but those three minutes are consisted of the final 30 seconds of a half, the yeah. final minute and a half of the game where they're down by 40 points. And it's like, what are we doing here? So, you know, now Jason Tatum's dad is now the, their new head coach. And I think he's his minute load has stabilized a little bit, but not really. I mean, yeah. he had a stretch where he was consistently getting 10 to 15 minutes a game, but their last game against Perth, five minutes. Um, earlier in the year is 15, 8, 14, 12, 3, 6, 4, 4, 10, 4. It's been all over the place. And the fact that he's had to deal with that after being a pretty highly touted recruit who was committed to one of the biggest athletic departments in the country, and now he's getting scrap minutes um, and sometimes playing 15, 20 minutes, it's really difficult for a young kid to deal with but it hasn't affected his mindset or his approach game in and game out at all. And I, I think that's really, really encouraging. So speaking of his mindset and approach, let's move on to talking about the playmaking. And this is something where I think this really shines through the sort of thesis, the title, the general idea of the article, right? Of this is something where, you know, okay, maybe the numbers don't look pretty, but again, you know, we talked about this already, right? Of, he's not someone who's pausing to survey the floor for two seconds every time he gets the ball. Right. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, we had the debate earlier of, you know, how much potential on ball equity he might have, but ultimately, I mean, if you're not, I mean, I think it's actually very important if you're the primary guy, so scratch what I was about to say, but you know, the idea being a lot of it, especially if you're a complimentary guy is just, do you make the right simple reads and, you know, do you, do you see those reads and do you make those reads? Right. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, like maybe he doesn't, you know, throw the, you know, wild, crazy highlight reel passes that some guys do, but you know, that's a future development thing, right? It's like, you have to be able to make the obvious basic passes first to keep the offense running. And if you can't do that, like if you can't clear that bar, then, you know, <laughs> that's kind of it for you in a sense. Right. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it might seem simple of like, oh, wow, he makes the basic pass. Congratulations. But, you know, it's surprising how many players don't clear that bar. And so, you know, when you do clear that bar, especially as, you know, again, a six, seven guy who's, you know, probably not going to be a primary point guard, right? It's very important to just be able to be a part of the team, right? You know, keep the ball moving, be a part of a five man scheme rather than just, all right, I get the ball. It's ISO time. Yeah. And just, 
the the simple play is almost always the right one. Um, and yeah. a lot of the time, that's what AJ does. Um, I, I I don't mean that to sound lazy, but he he doesn't have that kind of innate playmaking craft that we see from lead guards coming into the draft, like we saw with Scoot, like we saw with Cade, those kind of like we saw with Luca, um, or Trey, where you know they're creating everything they're seeing every inch of the floor they're passing guys open they're looking off defenders they're manipulating defensive coverages he doesn't do that so he's probably not going to be a number one kind of offensive creation option good news for him is 99 percent of prospects <laughs> aren't so it's an impossible threshold and standard to put on guys um but just being that consistent um reliable passer ball mover just have the vision to know where your teammates are and what the defense is kind of doing to react to what you're doing is really important and that kind of gives him i think secondary creation upside um you know maybe tertiary six man kind of lead the second unit type stuff um that i think is really really easy to build on and develop and kind of grow from being a good tool to you know, a really consistent and high level tool. So I, I don't think you're developing his playmaking out of nothing. I think it's just how creative can we get with it? How, how what are the next steps and how many levels up can it go? Because the, the decision-making there is sound where he's, he's rarely kind of forcing the issue, trying to thread passes that have no business being there. Um, he's just taking what the defense is often, often giving him, even though he's not really creating much out of it, creating something out of nothing. I'm going to go a bit weird with this one. So bear with me for Ooh, a moment here, it. but uh, no, not that weird. Calm down. Um, but no, the idea of, you know, I think there's a sort of level of there's essentially, I'm thinking about it in four tiers, right. Of there's basic playmaking of, do you make the right reads when the ball is passed to you? Do you, survey the floor quickly enough that you're not hesitating and standing around with the ball in your hands. Right. And that's, I think the level where AJ's at now. And then the next level up would be tertiary of like, okay, when the ball is swung to you, are you someone who we can rely on to, you know, make a good decision out of the triple threat, you know, either like you're driving or you're shooting or you're making a play for someone else, you know, you're not the main focus, but when the ball swings to you, it's not just, all right, either I'm shooting or keeping the ball moving. I'm actually attacking the defense and opening things up. And that's, I think, the kind of thing where even if all he ever gets to is sort of tertiary, that's, first of all, I think a huge step forward from the basic level. But, you know, I think the ultimate argument is the baseline level is something that, you know, people assume is baseline, but not very many people achieve. I mean, this is something that I've been thinking a lot recently with post-entry passes, right? Of like, Everybody thinks, oh, you just throw it to the seven-footer in the post. How hard could it be? And the answer is, well, it's actually a lot harder than people think it is. And people who can do it, you know, make a big difference for the center that they're passing it to. So, you know, again, I think the jump from four to three is an important one for him to make. But, you know, if five is sort of the, you know, hesitancy, not really quite sure what to do with the ball in their hands level, that's the most important jump. And I think he's proven that, you know, okay, Maybe it's not the flashiest stuff, but when it comes to, you know, the sort of baseline level of can you read and react at a solid enough level, he's there. And furthermore, him being there makes it easy to sort of see the signs of him getting to that tertiary level sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I, I think where you really see his kind of playmaking pop is when he gets out in transition, where he's they, where they do have a numbers advantage. Where you know after he attacks a closeout, and now the defense is having to scramble and rotate to him, and he makes a really nice dump off to a teammate, or you know, kind of those situations. And those are probably going to be the most common situations that he finds himself in in the NBA if he makes it to that level, um, where he's getting those consistent minutes. Where you know may, maybe he's teammates with a really high level playmaking guard and he's getting doubled when his teammate has to make that pass out of the double and it gets to him he's able to attack and attack quickly and either get to the rim be confident in his pull-up jumper drive and kick out to the corner shooter but it's all being done decisively it's all being done quickly and there it, there isn't room for hesitation in the nba because the windows are so small the everyone's ability to recover and rotate and just muck things up is so much higher than every other level of basketball in the world that if you hesitate, you're screwed. Yeah. Let's talk about the defense and this, I'm just going to start out with where you start the section. 
coming into the season, I expected Johnson to be a disaster on defense. Defending in a professional league is hard enough on its own. When you factor in a significant lack of comparative strength, it becomes infinitely more difficult. To my pleasant surprise, Johnson's defense has been really encouraging. And this is one where I think there is a whole lot of awesome process stuff that I think really makes it easier for me to buy in longer term. Because again, like my biggest, the biggest areas for him to improve right now, I think on both ends are the same thing. Very simple, just add strength, right? Like that's going to be huge for your finishing at the rim. It's also going to be huge for your ability to defend. But one thing that you mentioned up top that I think is really critical and something that I've actually been focusing quite a bit more on the past couple of weeks is how he fights through screens. And yeah. I'm saying that because, and I don't want to name names, but there are a few guys in this class near the top, actually, whose film I watched recently. And I just was astounded by how awful they were at fighting through screens. Yeah. And it's not just you know, being awful at fighting through screens because you're not strong. Like, okay, sure. There are, you know, guys who can't fight through screens because they don't have physical strength. But when you see someone like AJ, who strength is a serious deficit for them, and he's still fighting really hard over every screen. It's the kind of thing where, you know, again, it's like enough of defense is effort that when you see the clear effort in the process of AJ Johnson's defense, it's very easy for me to be like, okay, he doesn't have the strength to fight through screens and yet he's trying his best anyway, right? That leaves me a lot more room for encouragement than, you know, again, some of the top guys in this class who I watch them try and get around screens. It's just like, could you, like genuinely, would it be possible for you to try less hard than you are right now? And that is the exact opposite of AJ Johnson's problem, which I think is really encouraging. Yeah, and I, I kind of mentioned earlier that his current situation would make it really easy for him to just kind of check out and get yeah. disillusioned with this whole NBL process. But we keep seeing him fight and work and try and do the right things on both ends of the floor. And it really, really shines on the defensive end. I think, you know, he he's far from perfect. He gets caught up in screens. He gets caught ball watching occasionally, but he's also trying to communicate a lot. He's also trying to rotate and be that weak side defender that's tagging and recovering and, you know, switching and doing the right things so when i watch him on defense i know it's not perfect but i can tell that he gets it he gets how to play he's buying into what the coaches are trying to tell him and trying to coach him up on um he's not afraid of physicality he, he's willing to take a shoulder to the chest even though he's going to lose that battle 99 times out of 100 uh given his current physical state God, I, I make him sound like a, a just like he's deficient and new like, I, he's not malnourished he's just he's very lean right now um so ap apologies aj yeah. um sorry about that but but the, the 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 fight is there the want to is there and i know that all sounds cliche but it's really real um and i think it's a lot more real with a guy in his situation than it is with a guy at like a d1 school yeah i mean it sounds wishy-washy but it is very important just even taking a sense of pride on the defensive end of like, I don't want to let this guy score on me, right? Yeah. It's even something so simple as that makes such a dramatic difference versus like, you know, I'm out there to get buckets, right? It's like, okay, sure. You know, that's great for you personally, right? But, you know, trying to fit into a team context, it's, you know, not as pleasant when there's the one guy who's just trying to get buckets and everybody else is desperately trying to play five on four defense, right? You know, with AJ, it's again, you know, okay, there are reasons to be concerned. I mean, you know, beyond the sort of frame thing, which we've hammered to death because it's particularly important for him, right? I mean, you know, again, a lot of the process stuff, you know, I've talked quite frequently about the very high translation rate of steals rates to, you know, from previous level of basketball experience to the NBA, be that college or another mm -hmm. professional league. But, you know, the flip side of that is, there are guys who have really high steals rates because they're exceptional defenders. They read defenses really well. They have quick hands. They have strong hands. They can get on the ball. And then there are guys who have really high steal numbers because they gamble all the time and they gamble 10 times and two of them pay off. So they have two steals a game and the other eight are basically guaranteed buckets, right? That's not, you know, that's not good defense, which it's something that I struggle to evaluate just in particular because, you know, okay, there is the statistical element of, look, there's a very strong translation here, right? But you have to parse those numbers. And, you know, with AJ, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, maybe the raw number, the raw steal numbers don't look, you know, as great as you might want. But when he does get a steal, it's, oh, wow, he 
read that passing lane. He saw what was coming. He knew where he was supposed to be. He made the right play. He, you know, he was paying enough attention, but not ball watching, you know, all of those sorts of little things that, you know, some of it's effort, some of it's just sort of an innate awareness. But with AJ, it's the kind of thing where, look, the defense being where it's at right now is very impressive and very dramatically at this point, I think, carried by effort rather than him having the frame that he'll hopefully eventually have. And, you know, again, there's reason to think that, you know, you say the malnourished thing, sure, but really it's like, look, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have the, you know, <laughs> he doesn't have uh, Dwight Howard shoulders, right? But, you know, he's not the skinniest in terms of his frame. There's reason to think that he'll be able yeah. to put on good weight. And so that's the kind of thing where, all right, you look at where he's at now and, there's a lot of reason to think it's not pretty, right? But you look into the sort of underlying factors of, you know, hey, the effort's there. The fight through screens is there. And sort of similar to what I was talking about with the passing, right? Of, okay, if there's a baseline, he's already cleared it. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, you being the defense guru, you not, you know, being sure that he was going to be able to defend right away this year, you know, you being one over is is really saying something more than pretty much anyone else I know at those ceilings of if you're buying into the defense, they must actually be able to get, to be able to defend. Yeah, and th- there are guys in this draft who have much more encouraging physical profiles at this point who are nowhere near as effective defenders as he is right now, um, or at least attentive and, you know, competitive on that end of the floor. And what, what I just kind of keep going back to with AJ is that it, it feels like he just has a really high sense of feel and maturity and understanding of who he is as a player and what he wants to be as a player and just that 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 lack in physicality that lack in strength is just keeping him from that right now where if he was 195 right now i I think he's he might be conversation for top five in this draft but he's not and that's okay but he's still showing the mentality of who he wants to be as a player. And the fact that he's just continuously buying into that is really, really encouraging. And we don't really see that a whole lot from young guys, especially in less advantageous positions that he's in. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap this one up? Uh, No, AJ Johnson's just really fun. Um, Ignore the numbers right now. Ignore the numbers in year one. Give it time. Give it time. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11, and you can, of course, find his written work on the NoSealingsNBA.com website. Totally free. Check it out. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on the NoSealingsNBA.com website as well. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback on the show, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. 